Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. Hear this Psalm of David, uh, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. You still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. For the Hebrew children and for the families, the worshiping uh, Jews, this psalm was a tribute to God's gracious care for humanity. That God loves creation so much and he loves human beings so much that he set up an ecosystem where humanity cared for creation. We were supposed to subdue, to uh, oversee, to have dominion to have loving care over God's creation. The objection to that psalm in the face of events like we've had this week or many other weeks are, okay, where is God's gracious care now? What is the wisdom of God entrusting his creation to human beings? Uh, It does not seem evident, the wisdom. Uh, Even before the events Tuesday in Uvalde, we had, you know, new uncovered schemes, the the latest round of predatory lending and the buy now, pay later stuff. We had the Southern Baptist Church abuse scandal in the news. And then, of course, here in our own state. So what is our response to that? How do we grapple with what is the nature of God's gracious care through his agents, you and me? I was writing on Tuesday uh, what I thought would just be kind of a Memorial Day reflection sermon on, you know, what is a Christian response to uh, Memorial Day and this is ascension, the day we celebrate the ascension of Jesus, where Jesus uh, ascended to the right hand of God and it's from there, as we said in the creed, he will come again to judge uh, the living and the dead. And so I was reflecting on that and what does it mean to be a Christian as a primary allegiance and then also to be, in our case, an American. Or if you lived in Ukraine, uh, what does it mean to have those allegiances like that? But the question of faithful response in the midst of senseless evil seemed to grow uh, with the events in Texas this week. And so I shifted gears a little bit. I shifted from Colossians and what Uh, seem to be uh, ascension news there to this text that Becky read for us in Hebrews chapter 2. What is a faithful response in the midst of senseless evil? On a day where we celebrate the ascension of Jesus, that all things have been subjected to him, that he rules 
from the right hand of the Father. I found that this Hebrews chapter 2 language helped me to grapple with these questions as we live in this in-between time. As I sat in our chapel on Thursday, we opened the doors Thursday for folks to come and pray as they wanted to and invited the, you know, the congregation to pray wherever we were at work or driving that day. And as I prayed and thought about these events, this text was uh, very comforting for me and it, I feel like it kind of took me into uh, the story that I needed to be looking at this week. At present, said the writer of Hebrews, we do not yet see all things subject to him. In other words, we don't yet see everything subject to humanity the way that it was supposed to be. You and I were supposed to be the gracious stewards to govern things perfectly well. In the Garden of Eden, that was how it was set up, that we took perfect care of everything. There would have no death, no tears, all that stuff. So in other words, we do not yet see things as they should be as they were intended to be, and as one day they will be finally. The author of Hebrews, in a very masterful way, takes Psalm 8 and weaves it into his or her sermon in a way that just really invites these questions and leaves us looking where we need to look most often in these kinds of times, and that is directly into the face of Jesus Christ. They craft this sermon that calls our attention to how God exercises care for us even when we look around and wonder properly, where is God? For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, almost tongue in cheek, and then he just quotes Psalm 8. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him? I mean, this, this great, you know, if you, if anytime you look at the stars, anytime you watch a sunset, a sunrise, and we find ourselves saying these kinds of things, I am such a small, insignificant part of the universe. <laughs> when I look at all the things that you've created, God, and I watch children playing, and I just think, wow, what is man that you are mindful of me? Uh, and that's an appropriate response. And yet, for a little while, God made us just a little lower than angels. So the angels being the highest, you know, created order of what was created, he made us just a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned us with glory and honor, and you put all things in subjection under our feet. So even though we feel small and insignificant when we look at the entire cosmos, we hold in our hands the reins for the governance of the beautiful world that God created. That's how God set it up that we would take care of his creation. We would take care of one another and all the things that we see and experience around us. Now, he continues, in subjecting all things to him, humanity, man, uh, he left nothing not subject to him. So that's when we start kind of leaning in and going, wait a minute. If everything was left subject to us, uh, why do we not see it and so he answers our objection, our question. At present, we do not yet see all things subject to him. At present, we do not yet see what we were supposed to see. At present, we do not yet see what it looks like when we govern perfectly as human beings. In verse 9, but we do see Jesus 
crowned with glory and honor, another quotation, because he suffered death. He who, another quotation, for a little while was made, another quotation, lower than the angels, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Hebrews chapter 1 spends a lot of time talking about how Jesus is greater than all the created beings, that Jesus is much greater in uh, his nature and in his work than angels and human beings and all that stuff. And then immediately in chapter 2, we see this reminder that even though Jesus was part of creating the world, that all things were created in him, through him, for him, by him, all of that, for a little while, through the incarnation, Jesus was made just like us, just a little lower than the angels. And he became part of that experience of what it's like to govern and to steward and to love and to raise our families and teach our children in a broken world. Jesus knew that perfectly, yet without sin. So, what do we do if we live in this reality? At present, we do not yet see all things subject to what we're supposed to see. Uh, So if we don't yet see at present what we're supposed to see, what are we supposed to do? What do we do in the meantime when we're left holding, you know, what seems like at times nothing but our tears and our hopelessness. What do we do when we do not see all things subject? The first part is kind of what to us seems like always the action part. You know, those of us that sit around in these times and we go, but we got to do something, you know, we're tired of just talking about it. We're tired of praying, even though prayer is major action. You hear people say this, you know, and some people are saying it in kind ways and other people are saying it in not so kind ways, but action. It's that thing inside of us that burns at injustice and we say we got to do something. So when we see the whole creation, the subjection project that seems to be falling apart and we just shake our heads and go, gosh, what a world we live in, it is tempting to withdraw. Anybody else, anybody else tempted to withdraw and just, you know, homeschool your kids? Not that there's anything wrong with homeschooling your kids, but, you know, pull, just totally withdraw from society. I'm going to become an anarchist. I'm removing my party membership. I'm not voting anymore. I'm just going to go live in the mountains. I'm going to Alaska, and I'm not going to have any electricity. No one will be able to reach me. I'm just going to withdraw totally. Um, a little bit joking. I'm a little bit not. You know, that's, that's a temptation for me. I don't know what the temptation is for you, but it is tempting to withdraw or to isolate. And I think Jesus would tell us now is not the time to isolate. Now is not the time to withdraw. Now is not the time to give up on our agency, broken as it is. You and I still hold the dignity of human governance, of creation care in our hands. We still retain that call as God's sons and God's daughters. Now is not the time to give up on our agency. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was writing his, or he was preaching his Memorial Day sermon in 1931, or maybe it's 1932, I can't remember, but he was, he was, you know, this is before World War II, before he is martyred in 1944. Uh, he's a young uh, preacher. He's been studying in the academy. He's, he's already a doctor at this point. He's preaching marvelous sermons. He's gathering people together. Uh, he's starting work on what will eventually become his little seminary that had to go underground when Hitler's regime rises. So this is kind of at the early beginnings of all of Hitler's stuff, but they're still reflecting on the pain of World War I. So Bonhoeffer's asking this question. He's like, what does it mean to be a German congregation 
and to celebrate Memorial Day as Christians. Like, what does that look like? How do we remember the sacrifice of the people that died protecting our country? Uh, and when we're here, we are just looking for peace. And what he says, just so beautifully, he says, the, the only time that we truly mourn the dead in this kind of context is when we stand here, and he's here in his German congregation, and we're here in our American congregation, when we stand here with the same faithfulness with which they stood there. Isn't that great? We stand here with the same faithfulness with which they stood there, and we share what? The message of peace. What was the thing that they were willing to die for? Peace. So what do we share from here? Peace. That was his word. The message of the gospel to all nations. Shalom. Peace. Right? I thought of reading this sermon and thinking about our action response to events like this when we throw up our hands and say, gosh, why did God leave us with so much authority? We just are making such a mess of this. I don't even know what to do next. I thought also of Jeremiah chapter 29. You remember, it's the time of graduation and you tend to hear it a lot, rightfully so. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans not to harm you but to prosper you, right? Plans to give you hope and a future. And when we read just a few verses before that in Jeremiah 29, this is what God is saying to the people who remember are in exile. If there was ever a time to throw up their hands, this was it. And they didn't recognize anything in the country that they lived in from the country that they wanted to live in, the country that they longed for, the country, God's country, the country where they could just be the people that they were called to be. And so, the word of God comes to them in the midst of their exile. And thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Right? Get married. And then make sure your kids get married. And raise families. And do all the things that just seem like they would be a waste of time. Or why would you even bother in the midst of a world like we live in, and of course, this is much uh, further back than the world that we look at, but the same thing, we feel the same thing. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And then, you know, he goes on to say, don't listen to the prophets that say that they're from me, that are just telling you all the bad news stuff, that are just telling you why bother, the ones that are telling you don't worry about it, it's not worth it, that it's time to just cash in your chips. Uh, he says, those people did not come from me. Those are false prophets. I'm telling you that there's hope. And even in exile, you should build houses. You should get married. You should teach your kids to read. And sometimes when kids don't have the same shot at learning to read that we did, you can go to the elementary school and you can help those kids learn how to read. I heard that story this week. You know, those kinds of little things, that's what we double down on, you know, in these times where we wonder what we should really do. Jesus, well, yeah, we grow our friendships, right? We grow our marriages. We grow our relationships. We grow our organizations. Even though at present, we do not yet see all things subject to us, to humanity, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
And when it looks like the humble way of Jesus is failing, you know, for a little while, Jesus made lower than the angels. When it looks like that project is collapsing as well, this is the moment that he invites us to say, but we do see Jesus. At present, we do not see things as they should be, as they ought to be, and as they one day will be, but we do see Jesus. But we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor precisely because he suffered, because he suffered by God's grace. So Jesus' ascension, uh, even though you know, the disciples felt abandoned, remember, and, but, but when Jesus ascended and said, no, it's going to be better that I go away because then I'll send the Holy Spirit and the church will be built and all that good stuff. But people felt abandoned. And, but Jesus' ascension demonstrates for us our future, our destiny, it reminds us of what happens to the faithful, that one day we will rule, that we will reign with Jesus, just as he rules perfectly at the right hand of the Father. One day, all things will be subjected properly again to us. We will reign with Jesus. Those 19 students and a couple of adults, they will reign with Jesus in the world that is to come, in the new Eden, the new Jerusalem, with Christ but at present we grieve because we do not yet see all things subject as it was intended as it will be but we do see Jesus but how how do we see Jesus I mean Jesus just told us in the Gospels before he left he told Thomas he said Thomas you know yeah it's great that you saw me in my resurrected body but blessed, more blessed, in fact, are those who do not get to see what you saw, and yet they believe. So more blessed when we don't see Jesus and we believe through faith. But then the writer of Hebrews says, but we do see Jesus. So how do we see Jesus? What does that look like? Faith, we're reminded in this great sermon in Hebrews, that faith is seeing, and that we see Jesus through faith. Faith and therefore faithful responses tend to deteriorate as we witness the failure of humanity to govern and rule and subdue well. We see that all around us. The faith wanes, faithful responses wane. And so it's back before us to believe. It's back before us to see. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, the old hymn says. Look full in his wonderful face. How do we see Jesus? We're looking at Jesus right now. We are seeing Jesus in the gospel and reading the scriptures together, especially the gospels. We see Jesus in the prayers and the songs when we quiet our minds and our hearts and we close our eyes. And, uh, and then when we're driving down the road and we're praying, we see Jesus. We see Jesus in sacred spaces and stained glass. We see Jesus in icons. And we see Jesus in Holy Communion and the broken bread, and the poured out wine. We see Jesus specifically crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering. At present, we do not yet see all things subject, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. He who for a little while was made lower than the angels, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, that Jesus might taste death for us, for everyone. 
Can you hear the allusion there, Jesus tasting death? Where did the first sin enter the world through? Which, how did that happen? Remember, we hear there was, there was a taste of the forbidden fruit. That is the one thing that we're not supposed to do. You have rule and dominion over all these things. You have full access to all of this. But this one thing, uh, refrain from, don't taste this. And yet we as human beings, we go straight for it and we taste it. And so Jesus in response to that, so we, we taste death and Adam tasted death. And so we then are separated from God. We struggle now, understandably, to have dominion. And then Jesus, the second Adam, comes along and he tastes death as a response to our tasting, the forbidden fruit, so that he could reconcile us to God, to one another, so that Jesus could show us what perfect dominion looks like. It's just the sheer act of love, right? Jesus even prayed, this is the cup of suffering that Jesus tasted, that he drank for us. And it was the cup that he even prayed in the garden, Father, let this cup taken from be taken from me if it's your will but nevertheless not my will but thy will be done and so he does drink the cup of suffering and he tastes death for us not by coercion but by the grace of God as a gift as a free gift to us so that's what we see when we see Jesus that's the gospel that's what takes us into our response, whatever it may be. Uh, in 1865, you'll recall that Abraham Lincoln gave his second inaugural address. And many people will argue, the, the speech writing community will argue that it was his best speech ever. And he's on the tail end of the Civil War, and it's a beautiful speech. He goes through and retraces some of the history, and he knows he's talking to a divided nation, right? He knows it. He knows he's talking to a divided world that when one thing happens, this half of the population runs this way, and this half of the population runs that way. And it sounds so familiar to us. Often, even in the church, we see this kind of response. Lincoln knows this, and so he finishes his speech in this beautiful way, and I just want to leave you with the, this, this closing remarks as he as he kind of lays out all the things that are going to need to happen if we're going to survive uh, as a country. And he says, he finishes the speech, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and for his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. So brilliant. Can you see the picture of healing that he's calling for? Just see Jesus. Work to bind up wounds. Work to plant gardens and build houses. See Jesus. And this is the vision for what it looks like to subdue, even when things are not as they should be, as they were supposed to be, and as they will be again. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.